Galatians chapter 3. The issue that Paul's talking about in this section tonight is where does spiritual power come from? He is arguing, you know, with these Galatians, telling them that they have really lost the true gospel. He's not saying that they've not, they're not Christians anymore, but he's saying that they are in real danger of just drying up spiritually, and it's already begun to happen. They're already, um, later in this letter, he talks about how they're biting and devouring one another. Um, in another place, he says, what's happened to all of your joy? Here in this section, he says, who's bewitched you? In other words, you've forgotten something so basic, so fundamental to what it means to be a Christian, that the only reason I can think of for how this could have happened is that somebody literally bewitched you, or the the Greek literally has turned the evil eye on you. Ultimately, it's a satanic delusion. Who's been the instrument to bring this about? Now, Paul knows very well who the instrument has been. Some false teachers who came to this church after he had planted the church, after he had preached the gospel and then left, some false teachers came along and told these people, you're not real Christians unless you also obey the law. It's one thing to believe in Jesus, but you also need to obey the law if you want to really be a Christian. Now, should Christians obey the law? Yes. And and later, actually in Galatians chapter 5, he's going to tell us that we need to keep in step with the Spirit. And a lot of people think, Oh, that means we're just supposed to be led about by this Spirit internally guiding us. But when you actually look at what being led by the Spirit looks like, it looks like obeying the law. Right? Paul's not opposed to the law, but he is opposed to you thinking that you're obeying the law is how you get in God's good graces. Because if that's what you think, Paul says, then you're not actually obeying the law for God. You're obeying it for you. Did, did I tell this story about the, about the noble man um, who uh, was observing this king and how the farmer came, right? You know that little story? Yeah, did I tell that last week? No? You may have heard it before, Jake, I think. There's this story about this farmer who basically came to the king and um, gave him this, this beautiful horse. And the king said, oh, what a wonderful gift, and gave him like this, you know, huge plot of land. And there was, you know, one of the guys at the court um, sitting there listening and said, oh, wow, you know, for a horse, you get a, you get a whole plot of land. I wonder what, you know, I wonder what you get for, you know, a whole herd of cattle. So he comes the next day and he gives this elaborate gift to the king. And the king says, thank you very much. <laughs> and the guy's like, what? He says, you know, what do you, what king? I mean, yesterday this guy comes and brings you a horse. You give him a whole plot of land. I give you a whole herd of cattle and nothing. He says, the farmer gave the gift to me. You gave the cattle to yourself. Because you wanted something. It, was, it wasn't a gift. It was an attempt to earn something that you really wanted. That's what the Bible says, and that's what Galatians is, is trying to clarify for us. That a lot of what goes by the name of Christian obedience and Christian activity is not really Christian. It's not really service to God because it's not done out of a solid foundation of faith and knowing that the reason God loves you is not because of the things you do or the things you do for him. If you don't know that, Paul actually goes so far in Romans 14 as to say, everything that is not of faith, that doesn't arise from faith, is sin. And you say, whoa, where do I find the power to do that? Where do I find the power to live for God and not 
to try to manipulate him and not just feel like I need to get things from him? The answer is in this passage. So let's read it. Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 9 tonight. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And he's talking about when they got converted. That's a typical New Testament way of saying conversion. Did you receive the Spirit by, uh, how did you receive the Spirit? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? That's a good question for every Christian group or every Christian church or every group that wonders why, why God maybe isn't doing the things they want to do. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 15. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. That's the announcement of the gospel um, from Genesis 15. Again, that quote. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, so Paul here is, is contrasting again, like he's been doing at most every point in this letter, living by faith and living by observing the law. And he's saying, just think about how you became a Christian. Did you become a Christian by observing the law? No. The answer, actually Greek is interesting. In the Greek questions, the answer, you can tell from the way the question's framed, what answer is expected. So you don't have to guess. No is the answer to this question. It's an obvious answer. No, they did not become Christians by observing the law. They, they received the Spirit by grace. It was a gift given to them. They didn't earn it. But now he says, why do you think that after you become a Christian, the way you relate to God should turn upside down? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Somebody has bewitched you. And so he's talking about spiritual power, but then he goes into... Um, this whole story of Abraham. What's the connection? Well, here, here's the way I think to understand sort of the big picture of this passage. He's talking about spiritual power. And what he's saying is the message of the gospel of faith alone is where power comes from. So it was with Abraham, and so it must be for you. Abraham is actually a great example of someone who found spiritual uh, power through faith and not through what he did. Now, that wouldn't necessarily upset anybody in this room, probably, but that was a very upsetting thing to say to Jewish Christians or to the Jews in general because they regarded Abraham as the preeminent example of somebody who really sacrificed for God, who did all the right things, and therefore was blessed. You remember last week I talked about this Christian term that you find in the Bible sometimes called justification. Justification means to be declared righteous in God's sight. What is righteousness? Righteousness means 
that you get credit or God declares you beautiful in his sight because you've done everything that he requires. To be declared righteous, to be justified, is to be declared beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything he required. The Jews, a lot of the Jews thought that Abraham was the supreme example of somebody who was declared righteous. It says that in Genesis 15, yet they misread Genesis 15. They thought that he was declared righteous because he did the right things. Namely, he was circumcised. Now, Paul gets after this issue again over in Romans chapter 4, and he points out something that sort of demolishes their argument. When, did, when does Abraham get circumcised? Anybody know? It's Genesis 17. Abraham is declared righteous in Genesis 15. So the argument actually doesn't make any sense. And yet, most Jews thought that the fact that they were circumcised meant they were better than other people. It gave them a claim upon God. It earned them his judgment of, you did everything I've required. If you keep the food laws, if you keep yourself clean, if you walk the straight and narrow path, and if you're circumcised, then I declare about you that you're beautiful in my sight because you've done everything I require. And they said, look at Abraham. He got that judgment from God, and we want that. We're his children. We deserve that. Paul says, uh... Wait a second. He got that judgment two chapters and many years before he was circumcised. So obviously it wasn't the circumcision that was the cause of God saying that to him. Therefore, he actually is not an example of somebody who did all the right things. He's an example of somebody who trusted God and got credit for righteousness even when he didn't deserve it. And if you read the story of Abraham, you'll find he doesn't deserve it. Oh, yeah, he call, when God calls him, he picks up everything and he leaves. But the first thing he does is he says to his wife, hey, we're going to go into this land here and you're really beautiful. And so the people in this land are going to want to kill me and rape you. And so what we should do is tell them that you're my sister. And actually, technically, you know, distantly related, you are kind of my sister. Um, so it's not actually a lie, but he basically, he basically says, I'm going to offer you up, Sarah, to save my own skin. And then he does it again later when he's in Egypt. So he's not, he's not a hero. He's not a great guy. He's not a guy who God looks down upon him and says, you've done everything I ever asked. No. And yet he's declared righteous. And so Paul appeals to that and says he is the supreme example of what I'm trying to get you to understand, which is the Christian life, a life of relationship with God, is based on faith, not on what you do. And that's really the first point I want to make tonight. Where does spiritual power come from? Paul says it ultimately comes from a message. Ah. It comes from... A message. The message is the key. You see, Paul is addressing this question of spiritual power, and he says, where did you get the spiritual power? And he says, you got it from what you believed, not from what you did. You see that? Your spiritual power comes from what you believe, not from what you do. Let me say that again. Spiritual power comes from what you believe, not from what you do. I have to repeat that over and over again, because we don't believe that. And most Christian churches don't believe that. At least if you examine how they structure the things that they do, 
you would get the impression that the more things you do, the more spiritual power you can expect to have. Because churches are always planning all kinds of things to do and spending not a lot of time discipling people to understand better the message. But Paul says here, the message is the key. This message, this gospel message of justification by faith, of being declared righteous not because of what you do, that's the key. Spiritual power comes from that. Does God give you, he says in verse 5, the spirit and work miracles among you even now because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? And the answer is because you believe, not because of what you do. And yet, so often as Christians, when things aren't going well, what's our first thing that we want to change? I need to do something. I need to do something. I need to do something different. What do churches think that they need to do? They need to start a new program. They need to do more activity. And, and we bypass so often the key to spiritual power, which is by believing what you've heard. Actually, in John chapter 6, Jesus d- does the same thing. There's some disciples come to him and say, what are the works that God requires? It's a good question, isn't it? The answer Jesus gives, the work of God is this, to believe on the one he sent. He says, your, your question exposes just your addiction and commitment to activity. And man, it runs deep in us. It runs deep in us. We're just always wanting to, to do stuff. And it seems that, you know, a lot of people, I think, sort of kind of shrink back from being Christians because they think it's all about doing all kinds of things. I remember when I was considering becoming a Christian in ninth grade and thinking, okay, my mom has Bible studies like four or five nights a week. I don't want that. (laughs) I don't want to be any part of that. If I'm a Christian, can I, I I remember asking a friend of mine, can I become a Christian and go to like just one Bible study? (laughs) Is that okay? You know? And then when I became a Christian, you know what I, what, you know what I began to think? Man, I, you know, I've got church on Sunday. I've got, you know, this Christian ministry I was involved in midweek. I need to find a Bible study. That Christian ministry met on Thursday. So I need to find a Bible study about Tuesday because I'm kind of running out of juice. Because, again, I wasn't believing the message. I wasn't learning even what the message was. I had a very vague sense of what did it mean that Jesus died in the place of sinners. That message couldn't give me any power because I didn't understand it at all, really. I just knew that I was supposed to pray some prayer because Jesus did something. But I had no idea what it meant to actually trust the work of Christ. And so I thought, and really, all of my spiritual power was derived from being around Christians and hoping that I would just kind of soak it in, or doing a lot of Christian things. And people said, well, if you really want to grow as a Christian, share your faith, and read your Bible, and do all these things. But there was, I was never really taught that the reason you do those things is so that you can come to understand who God is more, understand the one you've believed in and what he's done. Because the character of God and the promises of God are the things that faith feeds on, not activity. Now, I know, you know, maybe you're reading the Bible and maybe that's the activity. And uh, hopefully the Bible breaks through anyway, even if you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And it does, because it's a living and active word, the Bible says in Hebrews 4, that gets in there and messes with you. It divides, it gets into the deepest parts of your heart, even when you're trying to use it for another purpose. But the point is... The message is the key to power. And and notice this, Paul says it's not just enough to know the message. 
When he talks about the way this message came to them and the effect it had, look at the way he says it. It's fascinating. Verse 1, he says, Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And you may wonder, what does that mean? I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that, that Paul took around a Polaroid camera and had pictures that he showed them. It doesn't mean even that he had any kind of physical representation because the Jews were rabidly concerned about not breaking the second commandment. They didn't make images about anything, certainly not God and certainly not Jesus. Now, you know, I don't want to get into debate about the second commandment and the Passion of Christ movie and all that. That's a topic we can talk about another day. But I'm telling you, Paul did not draw pictures of Jesus crucified. When he says to them that Jesus was clearly portrayed before your very eyes as crucified, what he's talking about is his preaching. And this is actually a really interesting insight that you get from this. If you want to understand what was the preaching, what was the the sort of way to describe apostolic preaching, it's this. It was a portrayal of Christ. Christ was displayed so that people could put their hope and trust in him. Listen, there's a difference, you know, between good writing and bad writing. I'm talking about if you're writing a novel or a short story. In bad writing, you say things like, the heroine was beautiful. But in good writing, you describe her in such a way that the reader says, this is beautiful. I don't know if Tolkien ever says that Aragorn is is beautiful. But I'm telling you, when you get to the end of The Lord of the Rings and you're reading the coronation deal... I mean, I, the last time I read through it, I was on a plane coming back from England, sitting in the middle of five other people, just bawling. Could not stop just bawling. The beauty of this king that we all long for, a king who will set things right, right? That's the way preaching should be. Jesus should be held up and displayed who is Jesus? Because again, faith feeds, faith feeds on the promises of God. And in Jesus, Paul says, actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises of God are fulfilled. Or as the old King James says, they're all yea and amen in Christ. Okay? So it's not enough that you just say, oh, yeah, I've heard about Jesus. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I think I'll be part of that. No, people that come to faith in Christ... Don't just give lip service to the message. They have an experience that can only be described as seeing Jesus with the eyes of faith portrayed as crucified. And it's particularly Christ crucified that is the key. Christ crucified. Have you seen Jesus and him crucified? Has that vision captured your heart's affection? It's one thing to say, yeah, I I believe that that happened. It's another thing to know that was for me. And the beauty of that overwhelms me. Now, I'm not saying that you have that all the time and consistently. But I'm saying that is the goal. And it should be what we pray for ourselves, what we pray for our friends, what we pray for people that may not know Jesus and we don't know where they're at in the journey All of us need to have Jesus clearly portrayed before our very eyes as crucified. That's the key to spiritual power. But you know, it's not just a mystical experience. It comes through the preaching of the word. 
It wasn't through art. It was not that art is bad. I think art has all kinds of wonderful uses. But it really was through the preaching of the word that these people had this experience. And Paul's saying, the way you began is the way you should continue to go on and grow. In other words, you continually need this experience of seeing Jesus clearly portrayed as crucified before your very eyes. You should pray that for yourself every time you crack open the Bible. You should pray that for yourself every time before you go to church. You should pray it Saturday night before you go to sleep. You should pray it all the time. You should pray it when you sit down with a Christian friend. It's what we need. So, if that's what we need, where do we get it? Where do we get that message? And that's where I want to talk, spend the rest of our time talking about tonight. And I basically want to make two points. It's this. What he says here in verse 8 is fascinating. He says, The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced, or some translations even say, preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. Now what's fascinating about this is in this verse, Paul has given us a really important clue as to what the Bible is all about and to how we come to apprehend this message that is the key to spiritual power. It's this. Here's, here's the two-part little deal of where we're going the rest of tonight. The Scripture is the key to understanding the Gospel, and the Gospel is the key to understanding the Scripture. You can't have the Gospel without the Scripture, and you can't have the Scripture without the Gospel. At least you, have a, you don't have the Scripture. You may think you have it. Now, how, how does that break down? What, what do I mean by that? Well, what's really interesting about this, this verse, verse 8, it's talking about Genesis 15. But here's the thing. Genesis 15 didn't exist as a written book when it happened. It was written afterwards. It was actually written by Moses many, many years afterwards. Okay? And so it's a pretty bizarre thing for Paul to say the Scripture proclaimed the gospel in advance to Abraham. After all, it doesn't, even seem to, it doesn't even seem to be the gospel. I mean, it doesn't mention Jesus, so how can it be the gospel? It doesn't tell people that they need to go forward at a meeting and pray Jesus into their heart, so how can it be the gospel? It is the gospel because the gospel is the promise of God. The gospel is the promise of God. When God makes this promise to Abraham... And in Genesis 15, he's promising him that there will be, you know, kind of you will be the father of many, that there will be a seed line that comes from you. What he basically is doing, what God is doing, is reiterating the promise that was made way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there will come a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. At the moment when Adam and Eve fall into sin and all seems lost, God steps in and utters a promise. It is the first preaching of the gospel as a promise. God says things will not stand this way. Your choice will be overruled. I will send one who will crush the head of the serpent. And the whole rest of the Bible is basically the story about how God kept that promise. And and more and more details about how that promise is going to be kept emerge as the story goes on. To Abraham it is revealed that he is going to be in that seed line of the Messiah. And so when God promises these descendants to him, he's not just promising to Abraham, you'll have lots of grandchildren and won't that be great? 
No, he's promising you will be the instrument through whom my promise and my plan and my commitment to not leave the world in sin will be realized. So when Abraham is struggling to believe that he really is going to have a son, he's struggling to believe the gospel and the very promise of God. And God has basically set himself up to have to do something miraculous to bring about this promise because he makes this promise to somebody who's as good as dead, the scripture said. The scriptures say that when God makes that promise to him, that he and his wife are as good as dead. They have no ability to be the instruments of God's promise and of his plan to save the world. And yet God does it anyway through the most unlikely of people. This is the gospel. And so when Paul looks at this, he says, the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. Now, why is that weird? Because it's God who says it. If you look back in Genesis 15, it says God said this to Abraham. But here in Galatians 3, Paul quotes the words that are spoken by God in Genesis 15 and says, the scripture says it. What do we get from that? What do we make of that? Was Paul confused? He wasn't confused. But what's going on here is you're getting sort of a, a clue into how the New Testament writers and how Jesus himself understood the Bible. In their mind, God says, Scripture says, were absolutely identical. There are many, many places in the Bible where it says, God said this, and if you look back at the quote, actually another person said it. There are other places where God says something, and then when it's quoted in the New Testament, it says, Scripture says this. What, you're, what you discover when you look at this and you think about this is, in the minds of the New Testament writers and in the mind of Jesus himself, because he does this very same thing himself, in their minds, what Scripture says, God says, and what God says, Scripture says. Now that actually is one of the, it's one of the real strong reasons why Christians believe that the Bible teaches that it's God's word. And we believe it because it's what Jesus himself taught. We don't believe as Christians that the Bible is God's word because we're able to verify every statement. We don't. We don't believe it because we've been able to check out everything. We believe it because we believe Jesus and he teaches it. He teaches it. And one of the ways that he shows that this is his understanding is the way he himself uses scripture. There's a really interesting place in, in, uh, in uh, actually I put it down on here. Um, where, where, what's the question? Oh yeah, it's on, the, it's on here. In John 10, chapter, 34, chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus makes a point from a single word in Psalm 82. And he's arguing with the Pharisees about his deity based on one word in Psalm 82. There's a theologian who's passed away now, but he has a great quote about this. He says, listen, Jesus Christ bases his deity on a single word in a secondary clause in an unimportant psalm by an obscure figure. It was written by Asaph, not by David or one of the big psalm writers, in the seemingly least authoritative part of the scripture, which is the Psalms. That's Jesus' understanding of scripture and the kind of authority that it has that he can base his argument for his deity upon a single word in a secondary clause in an unimportant psalm by an obscure figure. And he bases his whole life and his whole life's mission and his whole identity on that kind of stuff. What it means is Jesus regards all of the scripture as God's word. And so do the New Testament writers. 
you don't find them arguing about, you know, is this scripture true or not? No, they always quote scripture, as Paul does here, to end an argument. Notice the logic of Paul's argument here in Galatians 3. He's saying, he's arguing with them. Did you receive the Spirit by what you did or by faith? And then as the kicker, the conclusion to his argument, he quotes scripture and says, this settles it. Paul does not quote scripture ever to start an argument. He quotes scripture to end arguments. And Jesus does the exact same thing. If scripture says it, that settles it. That's the understanding that the New Testament writers and Jesus himself have about the Bible. And, you know, here's the thing. We, 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 we look at this and we go, oh, I don't know about that. Got all kinds of reasons why I'm not sure about that. And I know you do. And I'd love to talk to you about some of them. But let me just say a couple things about it even tonight. A lot of people want to say, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't know about the Bible. I like Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to, I want to believe in Jesus. But I don't know about this Bible. It's all kinds of weird stuff in there, stuff I don't really like, stuff I don't know what to do with, stuff that really offends me even. And here's the thing. How can you have Jesus, really, truly, how can you really have Jesus and claim that you're having a relationship with him, that you want to, you want to understand him and connect to him, if you trample on the thing that was the very core of his being. Jesus said, it was my meat and drink to do the will of my father. How does he know the will of his father? Well, he says it all the time. I'm doing this because the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus, every decision he makes is so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. It lays down the agenda for everything he is to do. And if you say that you want to have a relationship with him and yet you don't want to accept the Bible as he accepted it, do you understand that your relationship with him will always be seriously lacking something? It would be like saying, you know, I really love you, but I don't like anything that you like. (laughs) I really love you, but we don't have anything in common and I don't want to have anything in common with you. I know that this is so important to you. I just think that's silly but I really love you, and I really, want to, I really want to be your person in this world. Right? It's ridiculous. And yet we do that all the time. We say, Jesus, I want to, I want to be with you. I want to be part of you. I like you. I'm, I admire you. I think you're really great. I think you're the hope for this world. But the Bible, eh. See, that's a problem. <laughs> because Jesus says, Jesus says, this is who I am. It's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. The Scripture is what I'm all about. It, it defines his whole life. When, when, when things are most difficult, where does he turn? The scriptures. Do you know on the cross, do you know on the cross of Christ, he's meditating on Psalm 22 as he hangs there? Do you know that? The very first verse of Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't just make that up. He quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. Do you know the very last verse of Psalm 22? In the NIV, Psalm 22 says, he has done it. But in Hebrew, the word he and the word it are the same word. In other words, it could be translated, and sometimes is, not he has done it, but it is finished. 
The first and last words of Jesus on the cross are the first and last verses of Psalm 22. And you find it over and over and over again in his life. And do you know, here's the thing. Jesus hung on the cross not because he invoked his supernatural power to endure it. The very, the very essence of the cross is that he endured this suffering as a man. He did not resort to his supernatural power. That's a pretty amazing thing. Scripture sustained him on the cross. And you say you want to have a relationship with him, but you're not sure about the scriptures. You will never understand what makes him tick. You'll always be trying to live the Christian life, and it'll be a shell without the reality if you accept Jesus, but you don't accept the scripture. Now, I know that there's all kinds of barriers to accepting the scripture. And I'd love to talk through some of those with you. Call me up, email me, we'll get some coffee. This is a hard idea for us to swallow. I love this quote. I heard this quote a few years ago from Mother Jones Magazine. Anybody ever read Mother Jones Magazine? It's probably not not a magazine that Christians read very much, but we probably should read it more. Um, Anne Monroe was writing in Mother Jones Magazine in 1997, and she writes this. Listen to this. I love this. For the most part, Americans read the Bible as a manifesto of a God who has lots of laws. But we have to latch on to the idea that the Bible is not facts. It's not rules. It's not proof texts. It's a story and a conversation. It's a place of imagination and engagement. This radical notion that the Bible is not always right may be frightening to many Christians. However, if you approach the text as quote-unquote truth, you can't get into a deeper place of intimacy with God. Conversation is over if you believe every part of the Bible is truth. And conversation is one of the deepest and most subtle ways of play, growth, and intimacy. Now, there's some things in this quote that I like, okay? But her basic premise is absolutely wrong. If you don't believe that the Bible is right about everything, what you really believe is that the Bible is right only when it agrees with what you already believe. And therefore, you may think that you're having a conversation with God through the Bible, but in reality, you're having a conversation with yourself. And there are a lot of people, even Christians who say they believe the Bible is all of God's word, who filter out all the difficult things and show that they don't really believe that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And we do that in all kinds of ways. I don't like this. I'm not going to go there. I don't like this doctrine. I'm, not, I'm going to just stay away from it and avoid it at all costs. I don't know what to do with the book of Leviticus, so I'm just going to ignore it. You know, most Christians, if you look at the side of their Bible, you'll see dirt you know, where they've used the New Testament, but you'll see just clean pages. Two-thirds of the Bible we never read, right? Except for maybe some of the Psalms and Proverbs. Now, this is a big problem, you see, because we may think that we're relating to God, but if we don't accept the idea that the Bible is true in everything it says, then what you are left with is picking and choosing what you think is real and true. In which case, you're really just using the Bible to talk to yourself about what you already believe. Now, that may seem like a good idea, but let me tell you, when your heart is telling you that you're a piece of crap, how will you fight against that? Unless you have an authority outside of yourself that can tell you no. That's one thing to say when you want to do something you know you're not supposed to do, and the Bible is this authority that tells you no, oh, we don't want that. But let me tell you, if you throw out the idea of the Bible as an authority so that you can do what you want, when you really need the authority of the Bible, 
to tell your heart that it's misled, you won't have it. You can't pick and choose what to believe without it having devastating effects in your life. What you're really saying is, I want Jesus, but I don't really want what his life was based upon. In other words, you don't want the real Jesus. You want a Jesus who believes everything you believe. And that's not really very helpful. <laughs> so, you know, the, 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 you know the, 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 that's kind of the first thing. And that, that's actually really, I guess, a good place. I just want to say a couple things about this second point. Because I, I try to make this point a lot, so hopefully it's going to come up again and again. That, that's sort of this idea. If you throw out the Scripture, you really can't keep the Gospel. The Gospel is news, right? And at one level, it seems like news that we like, but let me tell you, there are a lot of times when your heart doesn't want to believe that news. And if the Scripture is not an authority that's above you, you won't be able to hold on to this Gospel for very long. You won't. The Scripture preached the Gospel to Abraham. The Scripture preached the Gospel. He didn't just have a warm fuzzy. The Scripture is the key to you knowing what the Gospel is and to you holding on to it. Okay? Second point is the Scripture preaches the Gospel to Abraham. The Scripture doesn't just tell him what to do. It preaches the Gospel. And in this we find that when Paul looks at the Bible, he understands that every message of the Bible, every passage of the Bible is about the Gospel. As a matter of fact, he says this, he summarizes this over in the Second Corinthians when he's talking to them about what he preached and what he taught them. And he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Jesus does the same thing with the two guys on the road to Emmaus. After he's been crucified and resurrected, he meets two disciples who are completely dejected because they don't know he's been resurrected. They're walking along this road to Emmaus, and he appears alongside them. They don't recognize who he is. This is in Luke 24. And he's talking to them and saying, what happened? And they're like, oh, well, we thought Jesus was the Messiah, but then he got crucified, and oh, we just don't know. And they're completely dejected. And it says there that Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets to explain to them from the scriptures, how the Messiah had to suffer and die. In other words, he shows how every passage of the Bible is about him. And after he leaves, one of the guys turns to the other guy and say, oh, didn't our hearts burn when he was opening up the scriptures to us? The key to the scriptures burning, affecting your life, is to see Jesus portrayed as crucified in all the scriptures. And that is true. That is the message of the Bible. Now, let me tell you, so many people have been raised in a really messed up way about this. I have little kids, and so I have several you know, children's Bibles. If you've ever read a children's Bible, except for one or two exceptions that I can think of, they all completely misread the Bible stories. They tell the Bible stories like they're kind of religious versions of Aesop's fables. Like David... The story of David and Goliath is sort of a spiritual version of Jack the Giant Killer. And they, and they tell the Bible stories like, you should be like David, and you should be like Samuel. Oh, really? Does that mean I should hack off the head of Agag? Daddy? <laughs> I mean, to, to lift up the Bible stories as these heroes we're supposed to emulate, you, you have to do all kinds of crazy things. You have to pick and choose what things you like, and then you're right back to having a conversation with yourself. Where the Bible agrees with your values, you pick those stories and you teach them to your children. Where it doesn't, you leave those out. 
the point of the Bible, the storyline of the whole Bible is God is the hero. Do you remember? Now, a great example of this is in the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath, the story, the action of that story is narrated in actually very few verses. Just a few verses. He finds a stone, he swings it, he hits Goliath in the head, he dies, he hacks off his head. Okay? Very, just very few, very succinct to the point. There's almost twice as many verses about David's speech as there are narrating the story. And yet, whenever you hear that story, you always hear about what he did. You don't hear about what he said. But what did he say? What he said was, the God who delivered me from lions and bears will deliver me from this Philistine. David wants you to know that the point of this is God's faithfulness. Not me. Not that I made a good shot. Not that if you really, if you really, you know, stick to your guns and are courageous that you'll be able to defeat the giants in your life. That's not the way we're to read the Bible. There's a a horrible song. It's actually in the Presbyterian hymnal called Dare to Be a Daniel. Anybody ever sing that one growing up? Yeah, Carissa probably did. (laughs) Well, you you know, I saw you and I saw you nodding and it doesn't surprise me. But there's others. I bet there are other people that you know that have sung this horrible song or others like it. The, The idea is the Bible should never be read in a moralistic way. The Bible is always preaching the gospel, which is news, not advice. But when we read the Bible in a moralistic way, we don't read the Bible as preaching the gospel to Abraham or to anybody else. We read the Bible as giving us examples of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And um, it really contradicts the whole point of the Bible. In Romans 8.3, Paul says that the law is powerless to change us. So why do we think that these examples of people who supposedly did the law, followed the law, will have power to change us? They don't. And you might say, well, what about Hebrews 11? And the heroes of faith, the hall of fame of faith, they're heroes of faith. What's emphasized in Hebrews 11 is not that they were great people, but that they had faith in God's promise. That it was able to break in and change the way they live. Not perfectly, but they're not lifted up as heroes. And some of those people, when you actually read the stories of what they did, they're not very good characters at all. Even Jephthah is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. You know what Jephthah did? Jephthah won a great victory. It's in Judges. I think he's in chapter 11. He wins this great victory, and he vows to the Lord that when he gets home, whatever comes out of his house first, out of his front door first, he will sacrifice to the Lord. He gets home, and who comes out? His daughter. And it says that Jephthah did to her what he had vowed. Is that the kind of guy you want to emulate? Who makes a silly, rash vow like that? No. But God, God, is faithful. That's the message of the Bible. That's the gospel. Let me pray together. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you that the gospel is true and it's real. That your gospel, God, is true and can be counted on. We thank you, Lord, for your scripture. We thank you, Lord, that we're not just left to wonder how can we live in a relationship with you, but you tell us, Lord, it's through faith It's through faith. It's through trusting in what happened, this good news. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the scripture which guards the gospel and preaches the gospel to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us with our doubts and our unbelief to glorify you by trusting you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.